Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We are still there. But the good news is we'll be finishing up in the next three weeks, and then we'll be moving on to newer ground. But um, over the week, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know what's worse. I don't know if it's worse to sit on a sermon for two weeks or have to preach unexpectedly. Because I've been sitting on this one, rethinking it, overthinking it, going through it, rewriting it, doing everything I could to it. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's worse than it was before. Um, so y'all pray for me on this. But if you have ever been scrolling through TV on a Sunday, you've either passed by or stopped and watched an older gentleman sitting at a high top stool next to a round table, faithfully preaching the word of God day in and day out. And I'm going to be honest with you, two weeks ago, it was a bittersweet week with the passing of Charles Stanley. Um, I'll be honest with you, it really shocked me because I thought about all that this man had done for me, even though I never met him, but all this man had done for me by the life that he lived, by the ministry that he had, and how he faithfully continued to minister for over 49 years. Most of you don't know it, but during the 80s, he was a part of leading our um, Southern Baptist Convention back into a conservative resurgency, which was very vital at the time because things were going extremely crazy in our seminaries and even in a lot of the pulpits. But the one thing that amazed me the most about Charles Stanley is he was a man of extreme self-control. He is the polar opposite of Scotty Gerard. <laughs> I'm serious. I extremely admire the man for the self-control that he had. And Andy, his son, told a story at his birthday about one of those instances of his self-control that still absolutely blows my mind. You see, Charles Stanley first started off as the associate pastor at First Baptist of Atlanta. And during some bad times, their pastor was asked to step down and he had to reside in some business meetings. And on a Wednesday night, things got extremely heated to the point that a deacon got up and started shouting some pretty ugly things. From the pulpit, Charles looked down at him and said, you better watch your language. The deacon comes up on the stage and says, you better watch yourself because you're about to get slugged. Sure enough, the deacon punches him right in the nose. How would y'all like to be known as the deacon who punched Charles Stanley? <laughs> I mean, I know all of our sins are forgotten and I know that, you know, God doesn't hold any account against us. But I wonder, is this guy going to have to answer for that one? That's a, uh, and I know, I get it. I've had deacons who want to punch me in the nose. Am I wrong? He's not looking at me because he knows it's true. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm sitting there thinking about, yeah. Come on. I'm sitting there thinking about this at the same time. And I'm thinking about, Okay, if this would have been me, what would I have done? 
And unfortunately, I can't tell you with everything inside of me that I would have composed myself the way that Charles Stanley composed himself. He didn't retaliate. He got up and simply went on with the meeting. I admire that. I admire that because self-control is one of the things that I battle with on a daily basis. But if we all really look deep into our lives, every single one of us are battling with this thing of self-control. Self-control is an important and overlooked fruit of the Spirit that all believers have access to, but at the same time, most of us are not tapping into this. And as the writer of Hebrews comes to an end and he's wrapping things up, he brings about some traits that he's talking about the whole concept of self-control in these traits. Now, before I get started, a lot of people will think that I'm preaching moralism. I'm not preaching moralism because moralism says that I can make myself right with God. What I am preaching is about sanctification, the process that takes place inside of a believer after they come to God, because those are two totally separate things. I don't know if many people really understand this, but Jesus did not die on the cross and forgive you of your sins for you to stay in the same place that you are right now. There is a striving of being better. Not being better to please God, but really being better to reflect the same image that Christ reflected to this earth. We cannot work our way to God. But at the same time, there are many marks that should be found in the believer's lives. Some of those marks are brotherly love, hospitality, service to them prison and mistreated. We'll get into that one a little bit. Purity in marriage, contentment, remembering spiritual leaders, and Christ's example. But as he's coming down to this, and especially in this last chapter, I can't help but think about a man like Charles Stanley, who faithfully served for so many years. And even today, as I, as I stand here, today is the ninth year that I've been pastor of this church. I realize how much more I need to grow in that same grace that God has so richly shown me. And brothers and sisters, I know if I need to grow in it, you do as well. So today, I'm not just preaching to you. I'm also preaching a lot to myself. But let's see what the writer has to say in Hebrews chapter 13, in verses 1 through 8. It says, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though imprisoned with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, <clears throat> God will judge." Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you. 
nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the results of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That verse we're actually going to be hitting on two weeks. But let's go to the Lord in prayer as we dig into the scripture this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to stand before you and your children. To proclaim the good news of your word. And also, Lord, to allow it to change my life. Father, as I've read this scripture over the last two weeks, you know my heart's been extremely convicted of things that I've got going on in my life. But Father, I also know that I'm not alone in this boat. I know as things get harder, Lord, our tongue is not as easy to bridle as it once was. Our thoughts are not as easy to take captive as they once were. And our actions are not as always easy to control as they should be. So this morning, Lord, as we dig into your word, I pray that you would help us to change through what it is you have to say to us this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart and mind to understand what it is that your word has for us this morning. And Father, just like we said in Sunday school this morning, don't let us leave with knowledge alone. Help us to use this knowledge to bring about wisdom in our life by applying it to our day in and day out activities. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who selflessly gave his life so that we may come to you. It is through his name that we do pray. Amen. So let's get real. Self-control. How are we doing? How many of you would say when it comes to self-control, you're at a 10? I knew that wasn't happening. All right, we'll take it down two notches. How many of you, when it comes to self-control, would say you're at an eight? We got some really honest people this morning. Six? Is anybody at a six? You're there half the time, there half not. It all depends on the day. Any fours? I'll be honest, I'm about a two. Is there, am I alone? Are y'all going to write? Okay, we got some more twos. So the rest of y'all must fall in the odd numbers because I'm not sure where the rest of you are. But honestly, self-control is something that we all struggle with. Self-control is something that I have been praying for in my daily life for a very long time. And you know what gets me the most about it? Is every day I pray for self-control. And you know what God does? I feel like he sets me up to fail. Because when I pray for self-control, it's kind of like praying for patience. When you pray for patience, you get an opportunity to be patient. 
when you pray for self-control, you get opportunities to be self-controlled. I don't know what I need to change in my prayer life, but me and God have got to get on the same page because I feel like I'm being set up to fail. But self-control is an important attribute that every believer must consider and think about. Self-control means mastery. If you were to look that word up in the Greek to what he's talking about, or Hebrew, what he's talking about right here, he is talking about the word mastery. And when you're saying self-control, he's talking about self-mastery. He's talking about mastering your thoughts or your mind, mastering your emotions, mastering your feelings, mastering your heart, mastering your actions, mastering your mouth. My biggest problem. And all of these things, all of these things could be compared to a wild ox. Honestly, a wild ox that is not easily tamed. But just like a wild ox, once you tame that ox and are able to bridle that ox, that ox can be used for some amazing things. Brothers and sisters, as believers, our self-control is one of the most critical things that we can work on in our sanctification. Because think about this. Most of the problems that we have in our life are not from the situations that we have. Most of the problems that we have in our life are how we react to the situations that are in our life. 90% of all of our problems are based on our reactions. And if we take time to really sit and think about this, we can eventually come to a point to where we start to master all of those things. The writer jots down a couple of key areas that we need to focus on. And when it comes to mastering yourself, the first area that he points out is brotherly love. Now again, most of you know, if you've been in church for a long time, the brotherly love that he's talking about here is Phileo or Philadelphia, which the city of brotherly love, the love that we have for each other. Be honest with me. How many of you can honestly say you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Some of you are better than I am. I love them. But there comes a point in their life that I just don't like them. You know what I mean? Wives, you get this, right? You love your husband. You don't always like him. Kids, you get this too. You love your mom and daddy, but you don't always like the things that they do. But honestly, the love that we have for our brothers and sisters is an important hallmark and an important point in all of our lives. Think about this. Jesus told his disciples that this one thing would be the thing that let everybody know that you are my disciples. And it wasn't about how often you attended church. It wasn't about how many times you went to Sunday school. It wasn't about how much you give. It wasn't about anything else that you do to serve in the community. The one thing 
that Jesus said that the people will know you are my disciples is by the love that you have for each other. Philadelphia. And guys, I get it. I get it. I've been a part of some of those hard meetings in church. I've been a part of some of those meetings that made you want to walk away and say, to heck with it all. But at the same time, I want you to remember the example of Jesus Christ. I can't help but wonder, do you think that thought maybe even slightly creeped in? Is this really worth it? When he asked God that first time, if there's any other way, Lord, allow this cup to pass from me. What was he really saying in that? See, we get to see a little bit of the humanity of Christ in that one scripture. That even he had those moments of weakness. How hard do you think it was for him to be hanging on that cross by nails drove through his wrist and feet and look down at the crowd and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man. Again, I just don't know that I'm always there. But he goes on to say that another way that we need to be growing in our self-control is our hospitality. Hospitality is one of the missing ingredients in most congregations today. That's one thing I am so thankful for of the people here at Harmony Grove. Y'all are a welcoming bunch of people. I can't tell you how many times me and Tommy have sit down with people. We sit down with individuals that have visited the church one time and they tell us that we have never been to a church where people are so welcoming. I think about Mary Carnes. I love watching Mary go in between service. Mary is never sitting still before service starts. She's going around purposely and finding the new people in the congregation because she wants them to feel welcome. Do you know what that does for me here in the pulpit? It tears down a wall. Because people come into these places with already preconceived notions of what it's going to be like. You know, some people think we're stuck up. You know, some people think that we're a bunch of self-righteous jerks. You know that some people think that we have our lives all together. That's pretty funny. But when people are coming in and being greeted and loved on, you tear down a wall that allows them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you do something in them that may not happen the rest of the day. In that moment, they know you're glad they're here. But the hospitality that he's talking about here it extends beyond these four walls. Because hospitality, when I grew up, meant something different. And today, it's not the same way. 
You know, there was a time that you could go around and knock on a door and expect to see a smiling face. You know what I mean? I've got pastors in our community have went, who have went and knocked on a door and got a shotgun in their face. This is a reality of where we're in. But that doesn't mean that we should be reacting the same way. Trust me, I've wanted to pull a shotgun on a time or two when the people come up to my door. I get it. I get it. Especially one group, but we won't get into that right now. But when it comes to hospitality, I want to ask you a real question. And this does come about with self-control. How are you using your home for your own personal ministry? You know, during pandemic, one thing that I loved seeing, and I want, I want, to, I want to publicly commend a couple of people. Joey, I loved hearing about your small group meeting at your house, even though sitting right next to you got bit by a copperhead at your house. I loved hearing about how you opened your house up to your small group. Heather, Daniel, I know y'all did the same thing. My small group has continued to meet in our house. We tried to come back to church. They don't want to go back. They want to stay at the house. So we've been meeting in our house. And you know what this has helped me and my wife to realize? (coughs) That our ministry doesn't stop here. But it's not just about our home. It's also about our possessions. Being hospitable with our possessions. One of the things that's always amazed me in Acts chapter 2. After Pentecost and all these believers come to know Christ as Savior. It says that they continued to meet with each other every day. Breaking bread. Sharing everything that they had with each other as one had need. Again, in a culture where we're told to get everything we can while we can, this is something that is really missing. It's missing. And guys, the reason it's missing is because we have become selfish. When you look at your home, when you look at your possessions, I want to remind you of this. They really belong to God. Everything that you have been given is a gift from God. And you know, we got people in our community who would never even consider stepping foot through those doors. But you know where they will step foot through? Invite them to dinner. See if they come through your doors. Give them a ride to the grocery store. See if they enter your car door. And while you got them there, present the gospel to them and see if Christ will knock on their door. Hospitality is an issue with self-control. Because we have to get away from the mindset that All I have belongs to me. And we also got to get away from the mindset that my house is my castle. Brothers and sisters, if your house is your castle, then you're building a kingdom and it's not God's kingdom. Those possessions belong to him.
But he also goes on to say that we need to be ministering to those who are imprisoned and ill-treated. So let's put this in perfect context here. To put this in perfect context, you've got to realize that he is not talking about going out and starting a jail ministry as many have. Because if you look what he says right there in verse 3, he says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself also are in the body. What he's talking about here is he is talking about believers who have been imprisoned for sharing the gospel. He's talking about people in Jerusalem who are being very wickedly treated because they are Christian. And you know, just a couple of years after the book of Hebrews is wrote, Something crazy happens in Jerusalem. The whole place starts to burn. The same thing happens in Rome. You know who got the blame? The Christians. Every year in November, we take time to remember our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. And through resources like, oh my gosh, I just lost their name. The resources they give us, we learn all things about our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And I'm gonna be honest with you, we really do not understand persecution. We have no idea the persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world go through on a daily basis. I think about the pastor who spoke not too long ago here from this pulpit in a different language. He got around town that Harmony Road had speaking in tongues that day. We did have an interpreter, so it was okay. But I think about what he went home to with an Islamic regime 20 miles away from his home with an open threat to kill anyone who does it follow their way. We have no idea. But brothers and sisters, we also don't need to be naive to think that it could not happen to us. It very most certainly could at any time shift gears in our world, in our country, and in this climate to where what we do right here is considered a crime. So when it comes to brotherly love, How are we doing in the area of self-control? He doesn't stop there. He goes on and hits some other high points. One of those high points is the purity of marriage. 
Marriage was created by God. In my years, I performed many wedding ceremonies. But do you know how many people I have unified together in marriage? Zero. Zero. And the reason I get this is because what God's Word says in Genesis and what Jesus teaches in Matthew, and it is clear that marriage is a union created by God. What God puts together, let no man separate. Marriage can't be defined by any cultural, political, or even time frame that we live in. Marriage has a distinct, distinct definition, and it can only be found in the context of what our Creator says about it. Over the years, this understanding has been muddied by opinions, by situations, and honestly, by a lot of failures. You know, many of us, including myself, have trust issues because of failed marriages in our life. I have some big trust issues because of the failed marriage that I grew up in. And I want to say something to this preference. I know many of you have undergone a horrible divorce. I know many of you did everything in your power. Some of you wouldn't even sign the papers to hold on to that marriage. And I know with everything in me that your heart was for your spouse. And to you, I want to say, I truly believe with all my heart, you are released. But that doesn't mean that we undermine what God has set in place for marriage. That doesn't mean that we change our thoughts or opinions. Listen to the words that he says. He says, hold it in honor. Keep the bed undefiled. And also hold to God's view on marriage. Because marriage is a sacred institution given to us by God. If you really look at the context of what happened in an Old Testament marriage, it's kind, of, it's kind of confusing to me. Because, parents, I'm going to be discreet, don't worry. Do you know what consummates a marriage? The act of sexual intercourse is what consummates a marriage. That is like you saying you're signing your name to a loan, signing your name to a mortgage, signing your name to a car. That is you signing your name to that institution. And you know, it bothers me because over the years, the church has been really silent on the topic of sex. God created sex. You know that, right? God created it for the procreation of mankind, but also for the intimacy between a man and a woman. 
And you know what's happened over the years? The world has heard the church's silence on God's view of sex, and they have completely perverted it. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to say something, and some of you are going to laugh. But sex is good in the context of a marriage of a man and a woman. Paul told men and women, never neglect yourself from each other except for a time of prayer. Except for a time of prayer. But as soon as you're done with prayer, come back together and do it quickly because if you do not, your self-control will be tempted. Church, let's call good what is good. And what God has created is good. It's not something taboo that we shouldn't be talking about. It's something that we should be sharing with our young people about on a daily basis. And parents, I want to tell you something. If you're not talking to your children by the age of third grade about sex, somebody else already has. Whose view do you want them to hear? This view or this view? Hold marriage sacred and everything that comes with it. So with that, how is it that we are doing in our self-control when it comes to the sacredness of marriage? He goes on to talk about contentment. And contentment is one of those things that we really need to think about a little bit. So, he is telling them not to be a lover of money and to be content with what you have been given. What he is not saying is be lazy. Because there are some people who think that you should not do anything, that you should wait on God to give you everything. And I'll just be honest with you. That's so unbiblical, it's not even funny. After the fall, the first thing that God said to Adam is by the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your brow, you will provide for you and your family. You will work the ground. You will bring about the increase into your house. And the reason I'm saying this is because I don't want anybody to ever say that it is not a good thing to strive for better. All of us should be striving for better. Just like it is not a bad thing to have possessions. You know, for a long time, everybody wanted to talk about the prosperity gospel and what a bad impact it had on the church. But at the same time, there was a poverty gospel being taught at the same time that says that you should give away everything, that you shouldn't own nothing. Well, then I guess David was wrong. Because David owned a lot. You know who owned more than that? Solomon. He owned a lot more than that. Brothers and sisters, it's not a sin to have good stuff. It's not a sin to have nice stuff. But it is a sin when we start allowing that to be the God of our life. When we allow stuff to take the place of God in our life, then it is sin. And you know what's even worse than that? Is when we start envying other people's stuff. 
And this is where we're at today. Because we've come to a point of not where we want better for ourselves. We just want what everybody else has. And let's be honest, we really don't want them to have it. We've become like a seven-year-old. That's mine. Don't touch it. Brothers and sisters, the only way that we can battle this is with truth thanksgiving. And I'm not talking about that Thursday. In November, once a year. I'm talking about every day of your life. Last Sunday morning, I sit in Sunday school. And we were talking about how we had saw God that week. And mine, I know it's going to seem foolish, but me and the boys were outside on a Tuesday playing ball. The sun's going down. It's absolutely beautiful day. Not too hot, not sweating. Boys are hitting good. Yeah. And all of a sudden it hits me. Those two are God's gift. Because me and Jennifer should have never had them. And then I turn around and I look at our house. And I'm reminded, that is God's gift. We would have never been able to get that house with what we were able to afford. And then I look at my wife and I think, I'm her gift. (laughs) I didn't. Can I borrow somebody's couch tonight? (laughs) You're going to have to get off of it. (laughs) And with that, the Holy Spirit just left the room. In that moment of realizing that everything that God had given me, I mean, my dog even walks out and I'm sitting there thinking, it's my gift. (laughs) That dog loves me like none of y'all do, I promise you. (laughs) Like like, uh, Brian said, I just wish. My wife was as happy to see me of an afternoon as my dog is. (laughs) On track, on track. In that moment of realizing everything that God had given me, you know what I felt in my heart that I hadn't felt in a while? True contentment. I didn't want a bigger house. I didn't want a new car. I didn't want a new wife. I didn't want more kids. 
I truly experienced what it was like to be content with what God had given me because he has blessed me so. And look what the scripture says there. Because he reminds us of what the Lord himself said when he said he will never desert you nor will he ever forsake you. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see, when you get to this point with God of where you are purposely acknowledging him for who he is, for what he's done for you, there becomes an intimacy there with God. that you grow hungry for and you want it you want it every day of your life but you know one of the things it takes to have that continual intimacy self-control of your time are you making that time to see God in your daily life I think you can see him at Walmart if you look hard enough. I think you can see him in the midst of chaos and war if you look hard enough. I think you can see him in the midst of your biggest disaster if you look hard enough. But again, my question is, are we looking hard enough? The last thing he points out, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because I'll be hitting this one in two weeks really hard but he talks about the treatment of leaders especially those who spoke the word of God to you why don't you think about it all through your life how many people have sat down and taught the word of God with you for some maybe it was your mom or maybe it was your dad for some of you maybe it was a Sunday school teacher like Brian or Tommy. For some of you, even, mother, even further back, maybe it was Farrell Penland. For some of you, maybe it was Aaron or even Jerry. And all I'm going to say to this point is this. I know, again, there's been lots of structures and systems that God has put in place that man has failed at, even when it comes to Sunday school teachers, mentors, and even pastors. But brothers and sisters, I'm going to go ask you to guard your heart on this. Don't lump every pastor, every Sunday school teacher, every mentor in your life in the same boat as the ones who failed you. Don't do that. Because when you are doing that, you are limiting God from using them to work in your life. And another thing, you want to go at it? Get with Brian. We'll let you. We want to help you equip yourself and equip you to do the work of the ministry so that you can be those individuals who are pouring the word of God into you. Because I want to tell you something. I'm thankful for men like Berlin Thomas. Theologically, I didn't agree with him with everything that he said. But I will say this. That night that he took me coon hunting and spent time with me and we talked about John 3, 16 that night. Never forgot it. Hubert Legg, another pastor that I sat under when I was younger. 
Therefore, while I loved going to the funeral home and seeing him greet people every day and constantly he would ask me, preacher, are you still going at it? I said, yes, Berlin. Or yes, uh, Hubert, I'm still going at it. And then he'd say something smart like, well, I knew there was going to be a preacher one day. I just didn't think it was going to be you. <laughs> Humility is what he is teaching me. But at the same time, remember those leaders because that in itself is part of self-control. It's part of being intentional in our daily lives. You know, a bad thing happens whenever we speak about self-control. Whenever we speak about self-control, people get upset. And the reason people get upset is because conviction comes upon them. This happened with Paul before Felix. Paul is preaching to Felix, not only about the gospel, but if you read it in Acts, he even says that he's talking to him about self-control. Felix gets so angry with Paul that he sends him out of the room. Sends him out of the room. David, young David, is trying to talk to Saul, talk some reason into Saul, talking to Saul about self-control. And what does David want to do, or Saul want to do? David, Saul wants to kill young David. But let's flip it around. Because Nathan even has a conversation with David one time about self-control after his act of adultery. What does David do? The man who did this needs to be dead. And Nathan says, that man is you. Whenever we talk about self-control, conviction comes on us. And I want to be sure that it's Holy Spirit conviction and not worldly conviction. Because this conviction comes upon us because we know that we still have work to do in our life. And we know that as long as we're on this side of eternity, that God is constantly working to complete the good work that he started in us. But in this scripture, we also have to remember this. Like it says there in verse 8, that Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And brothers and sisters, over time, our mindset of things that are considered holy They've changed. They've changed. According to certain groups, people who show up at church once a month now can consider themselves weekly or regular attenders. And I wrestle with that. I wrestle with that because Acts tells us that the first disciples continued to meet in the temple daily. So how do they justify that? I wrestle with that because Hebrews earlier told us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as if some have already done. But it's not just with that. It's the love that we have for one another. In the last three weeks, I've seen Christian brothers at each other's throat over a coach's pitch, pitch baseball game. I've seen pastors 
at each other's throat over some secondary views of end times. I've seen people who profess to be believers cuss people out and even flip them the bird. And people will say, well, self-control is not something that we need to work on. But I disagree. Because when Peter writes his second book, he is writing to a group of believers. And he is warning them about times that are about to come. Times of false prophets. Times of hardship. And I want you to listen to what he says. And I'm going to read pretty much um, the first eight verses of this. But it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. You see, we need to know who God is. We need to know those attributes of Christ and we need to see how self-controlled he was. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now see what he's saying here is because there is a divine nature that our nature is always fighting against. Those natures in us are the natures of our opinions, the natures of our wickedness, the natures of the evil that still is in us. And this is why self-control is important. But he goes on to say this, for by these you have He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promise so that by them we may become partakers of that divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also apply all diligence in your faith, supplying moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me bullet down what he's saying here. He's letting the people know that rough times are coming. And in during these rough times, instead of us wanting to do the things that we really want to do, which is retaliate, punch a deacon in the nose, we need this self-control more than ever. And you know, over the last two weeks, I've really been battling with this. 
And I really believe that this is one of the main reasons that we are not seeing revival take place in all of our hearts. Because when Christ died for us and we accepted that free gift, He set residence in our heart. But there's a problem. There's still a lot of me in here. There's still a lot of me in here. There's still a lot of my anger. There's still a lot of my hatred. There's still a lot, a lot of my covetousness. Still lust. And all these things are things that I really need self control over. I want you to think about this. The early church experienced nothing like what we're seeing now. Everything, everybody wants to say, Oh, it's got worse, it's got worse, it's got worse. I want you to read some historians like Josephus and see what the early church experienced. They experienced things like we're seeing in other parts of the world. And you know what amazes me the most about it? During that time of persecution, during that time when everything was coming at them, they thrived more so than we've seen in a long time daily 3,000 2,000 5,000 people coming to know Christ like that but you know what we don't hear we don't hear them trying to stand up against a regime we don't hear them doing unto others as others do to them. We hear about a love that can only come for Christ, that set a spark, that lit a blaze, that eventually set your heart on fire. How are we doing with our self-control? Father, I'm a wicked man. And Father, I know a pastor once told me the more that I know, the more I'll realize how much more of you that I need. And I never realized that, Lord, until when it really comes to try to live out the life that you've called me to live. Jesus, I really need you to help me with my self-control so that by the love that I have for my brothers and sisters that the world will know that I am your disciple. I really need help with my hospitality. 
Because the simple act, Lord, of being hospitable to somebody is enough to bring down the walls that can open up a conversation with the gospel. Father, I really need help holding to the structures, to the systems, to the things that you have put in place when it comes to the church or marriage. Because, Father, these are your institutes that you put in place. And daily, there are my own thoughts and opinions that wage war with inside me. And, Father, I know things are going to get worse. But I also know that through your Holy Spirit, helping me with that fruit of the Spirit of self-control, that I can be an effective disciple for your gospel. Help us all to do just that. Father, we love you. Don't let us leave with just knowledge. Help us to apply it so that through us, Lord, people can come to know you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey guys, Pastor Scotty Gerard here, and I just wanted to say thank you for joining us today. We really hope that this has been a resource that's helped you grow in your purpose for God, but also grow in His glory. We also want to extend an invitation to you to join us here in person at Harmony Grove. We are located at 1008 Town Creek School Road in Blairsville, Georgia. We would love for you to come be a part of our service, to be a part of our small groups. If you have children, we have children's classes on Wednesday night and on Sunday morning. And all this information can be found on our website. We'd also like to continue help you in your growth with Christ. If you have a question, maybe a prayer request, or just need to talk to somebody, you can contact us in the emails below in the description, or you can also contact us through our app and through our website, which are also found in the description below. Again, we hope this has been a blessing to you because we know that you joining us today has been a great blessing to us. Thank you so much. God bless.